Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Paris of Copper Beach Financial Group. Michael, how are you? I'm good, Eric. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I know that you are going to be driving the conversation today. John, I know you're here as well, and you are going to be really putting the screws to him as far as the questions you're going to G2 day. <laughs> G2 days. <laughs> yeah. So, so, Michael, I know that we've got a, a kind of a weighty topic today. What is it? Yeah. He's, uh, and by the way, you're always going to put the screws to me in, in terms of when it's uh, – when it's when it's my topic he's our to technical about. guy that's, that's what, his job that's what he does <laughs> yeah no today's topic will be a, a little bit more technical perhaps than uh than we've talked about on recent podcasts but it's something that has come up uh it, in our practice that we've seen over the last few months that we've just been involved in more of these conversations with families and so we just thought it would be more of a pertinent topic to talk about since it was fresh of mind and uh and what that's going to be is more to talk about how to structure an ownership by sell agreement between business partners if one of the partners passes away. And there's, there's some technical structuring that, that should be done in these types of agreements that, again, we've had some conversations recently with families about that and revisiting how that all works. And so, again, that's what we're going to talk about today. We'll try to keep it at a somewhat of a high level, but it does get a little bit technical. But I know, um, Dad, you will put the screws to me if I get too technical and you'll ask some good questions. So, yes, sir. Yes. Well, and the, the other thing is I just want to encourage the audience is that um, at the end of the podcast, I do want to ask you to give your email address out because this will spark questions, obviously, because you can't dive so deep into this to answer all the questions. So audience, please, by all means, email the questions and the guys will be happy to answer. them. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So I thought I'd, I'd start with really talking about taking a step back and, and almost discuss what happens to your business when you when you pass away. And this has different ramifications if you're the sole owner of a company or what we're going to talk about today, if you're a multi-owner business. So you're going to have partners, maybe one partner or multiple partners. And obviously, as you alluded to, Eric, there is a lot of detail we can get into depending on the type of business structure you have. We'll, we'll try to keep it at a high level. But but um, I thought we would start there in terms of what happens to your your shares of your business or your membership interest, if you have an LLC, after you pass away. And, and what typically happens is those become a part of your estate plan. Absent any sort of buy-sell agreement like we're going to talk about, your interests go by way of your estate plan. So if you have a will that leaves everything to a spouse, as an example, your shares of your business will become a part of that uh, spousal uh, gift in terms of where your assets go. So that's typically the first step that you have to be aware of is because that really leads into why these buy-sell agreements are a really critical component of your planning, particularly when you have a multi-owner business. Because if you have one other partner, as an example, and you're a business owner and you own that business 50-50, absent this type of agreement, if you pass away, your shares of that business or your interest in that business will be transferred to a spouse, or if you're, you're unmarried, it'll go to your kids or whoever is the recipient of your estate plan. And, and very often, if you're the surviving partner in that situation, that nine times out of 10 is not the most ideal situation 
to, to have occur because most of the time the surviving business owner really either A, does not want to be in business with the heirs of your estate, or it's just not an ideal situation. And that's where the buy-sell agreement comes into play because what this buy-sell agreement is going to do is to outline a purchase between partners if one partner passes away. And that's really what we're going to talk about today in terms of how you might want to consider designing that type of buy-sell agreement. But I think it's important to really lay that foundation first as to why you want to have or consider having these types of agreements. So when you think of partnerships, how often do they work out? It's a rhetorical question. Not, not real often. There's always a challenge between partners that have a same vision for the company, but they think differently about things. And to Michael's point, if there's a remainder spouse involved that was never involved in the business, if you don't design these agreements properly, you're now in a partnership with your partner's wife or son or daughter, whoever it might be. So it's critically kind of think through that and, and understand what the impact that will have. Yep. Yep. And so how this buy-sell agreement typically is working is that if a partner passes away, there's typically a buyout that occurs from the deceased partner. So this, again, typically is how most business owners would want it to be structured because let's think about if you are the partner who, who passes away, nine times out of 10, you would probably not want your spouse to take over your interest in the business because the spouse or the children might not have any experience running that company. So this buyout agreement actually helps all parties typically if a partner were to pass away. And as you alluded to, Dad, by the way, I want to want to touch on that because I think it is an important part. When you're designing these buy-sell agreements, there we're, we're talking really today about one type of triggering event, that being the the passing away of a partner. But we've talked on a few podcasts in the past, these triggering events can take a whole a variety of, of topics from, I just don't want to be in business with you anymore. Maybe a partner becomes disabled and can no longer work in the company. Maybe they get divorced. Uh, the, the, what partner gets divorced and their interests might be a part of that marital settlement. So there are a whole host of these triggering events that your buy-sell agreement should cover separate from just the passing away of one partner. And in fact, when I review buy-sell agreements, I almost always see a provision that deals with the passing away of one partner. But really, like you sort of alluded to that, most of these buy-sell agreements are triggered not because of that, they're triggered for some other reason. Partner maybe doesn't want to be in business or they retire or some other triggering event is actually more common. And very often those triggering events aren't included in the agreement. So it is important to really flesh out all of those triggering events when you're designing this agreement. But again, we're going to talk about today more just what happens when a partner passes away. So again, this buy-sell agreement, as I mentioned, details what happens if a partner passes away. And very often there is a buyout provision that the other partner would buy out the interest from the deceased spouse's estate or from the deceased, spouse, uh, deceased partner's spouse. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about today. And there's a couple different ways, two principal ways that you can design that type of structure. All right. And we're going to get into a little bit of terminology here. One of those is called a cross purchase agreement. 
The other is called an entity redemption agreement. You don't necessarily need to remember those terms, but it is an important distinction when you're designing these agreements, because what all this means at a very high level is what is the actual party that is making the purchase from the deceased partner's estate. In a cross-purchase design, it is actually the surviving partner's or owners of the business that are actually purchasing the interest from the deceased partner. In an entity redemption agreement, it is the company or the organization that is making that purchase. Substantively, or at a very high level rather, that might not seem like there's much of a difference there, but it does make a difference from a tax standpoint, which we'll probably get into a little bit, in terms of how that might want to be designed one way or the other, depending on your business. So that's really what I wanted to talk about today is to really sort of maybe delve a little bit into each one of these two different regimes, if you will, and maybe go through the pros and cons of each of those. So in case you're out there listening and you're maybe in the process of designing this buy-sell agreement, or maybe you don't have a buy-sell agreement and you're involved in a business with a partner, hopefully this will give you a little bit of a foundation. I'm going to jump in here for a second, Michael. There's also a third option, which probably won't talk too much about today, but it's called a wait and see agreement. What what that means is we don't know what the tax laws are going to be 10, 20 years from now when Mm -hmm. it might be triggered. So you you draft the document with the with the attorneys to take advantage of whether a redemption makes sense or whether a cross purchase makes sense. Yep. So that's one of the things we've seen in the past. But Michael's going to talk about the two different strategies that t- people typically put in place. But there is a third option. It's called the wait and see. Yeah. Actually, that was going to be my conclusion. You just ruined the secret. Sorry, I had to throw it in there, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Putting the screws to me already. I want to show how smart I was. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> uh, no, so that, well, that that is, yeah, that is an important and and what we would typically again when we work with the clients and business owners and their advisors on designing these agreements, usually that wait and see approach is nine times out of ten the route that is chosen because there could be legitimate reasons why either the cross-purchase makes sense or the entity redemption type of agreement makes sense. And you're not really sure at the time, because of course, you know, unless the circumstances are such that you really have an idea of when a partner is going to pass away, you really have no idea uh, what the situation will be when this agreement is triggered. So you want to be flexible more often than not. Uh, at least that's, that's what we see our families um, really end up at. But let, let, let's, take a, the, let, let's take a step back and look at the, this cross-purchase design. The cross-purchase agreement, as I mentioned, is really if a partner passes away, the surviving partners are actually the parties that are buying out that interest. And typically, actually in both of these cases, both cross-purchase and entity redemption, typically the way that this is funded is via some sort of life insurance policy that the partners will purchase on each other to be able to facilitate that buyout. So if my father and I were partners in a business and we had a cross-purchase design- We are. Do, well, we are. I know that, yes. But <laughs> if we were in a, in a partnership agreement, I would own a life insurance policy on my father and my father would own a life insurance policy on me. So if I were to pass away, the life insurance policy that my father owns on my life, the death benefit would be payable to him and he would have the ability to then buy my wife out for whatever interest and value of the business 
uh, that life insurance that life insurance covers. So there's a couple components there that are important. Number one, you want to make sure that the life insurance policy that you're purchasing sort of equates to the value of the company oftentimes. So that's, again, really where having somebody review that on a regular basis is important because we've seen as a, a family that, that I'm thinking of uh, off the top of my head where their buy-sell agreement was, I, when we went through our audit, we saw that the, the business owned, I think, probably like seven different life insurance policies on one of the owners. And that was because every few years, they actually did a very good job of reviewing the value of the company to make sure that there was enough coverage in place to be able to fully facilitate that buyout because that was in their plan. They wanted to have the life insurance policies fully buy out the deceased partner. So if you want to make sure that if you have a growing company, that the life insurance value that you've purchased to facilitate all this is sort of equal or somewhat close to the value if that's a goal. If there's any shortfall, typically a good buy-sell agreement would have provisions to be able to you know, buy out provisions, maybe via promissory note over, let's say, a 10 or 15-year period of time. So that's really more the design. But, but generally, the life insurance component is, is the vehicle that makes all this buy-sell agreement cross-purchase design work. Yeah, let's go back to you, me and Michael for a second. Michael put up a great point. If we had a shareholder agreement, it, it, ours is a little different because he's just going to he's going to just take over the business as though really buy it. He's going to just take over the business. But basically, he, he, the insurance requirement on both parties, I'm just a tad older than Michael. So what's his cost versus my cost on him? Right. right. So there's a balance of what's what's the cost. Where's that money come from? T- typically, we look at the company funding that through a bonus structure. Uh, it's a 162 bonus where you just pay out the fair amount to each party and they pay for the insurance. So, so it's 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 more of a. I don't want to get into the weeds with that, but understand that that's that could be a, a discussion that 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 has to be had. Well, that's a key. That, I mean, that's a great point because that is a key. When we are going through this design with families, that's a one of the key detriments that is brought up depending on the ownership structure of the company is that, well, hey, 20 years, 30 years younger than a partner two. So my insurance, the, the, the payment that I'm going to have to make premium-wise to invest into that contract is a lot higher. So uh, this doesn't seem fair to me. And that's really where, again, we start getting into those types of conversations. Um, now, the other downside of a cross-purchase is the more partners you have in a business, the more life insurance policies you need to buy. So in a two-partner business, it's relatively easy. I buy one policy on my father and my father buys a policy on me. If you now just add one more partner, now I need to have two insurance policies, right? I need to own a policy on my father and that other partner and vice versa. So now you have six policies that need to be purchased among the three partners. And if you add four, you do the math. It's going to really increase the administrative uh, complexity oftentimes of how many policies are, are are need to be purchased to facilitate this buyout and this buy-sell agreement, which is why a lot of people tend to shy away from cross-purchase types of designs when there's more than two or three partners involved in the business. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Now, there are certain LLC structures or single-purpose entities that you can actually put in place um, that will minimize the amount of, of policies that you need to buy, but still facilitate this cross-purchase design. Again, that's a topic uh, for maybe another podcast, but there are ways to, to sort of counteract that, uh, you know, the, having to have the number of policies. 
Um, but you need a sophisticated advisor team that's going to be able to put that in place. So that's one of the detriments. Now let's talk about that. I know you like you you always like to talk about the uh, the tax income tax benefits to the surviving partners of a cross purchase design. So why don't you? Oh, you're you're, you're motioning you're, that to me. You're the tax Please guy. Put, put yeah, come on, you're this. the tax guy. I thought. Well, listen, I, you've been very quiet, more quiet on this <laughs> podcast than in prior ones. You thought you were chomping at the bit. All right. <sighs> I will get into that. So on the cross-purchase design, you often ask the question, when you're in partnership conversation with two partners, who has the advantage of passing away first or second in a partnership agreement? That's a strange question to ask partners, but it's an interesting response we get. Right? So from a tax standpoint, who's who has the more tax advantage? Well, in a cross-purchase design, it's actually the surviving partner versus the entity redemption agreement regime, which I will get into in a second. And the reason is, is because if the surviving partner buys out the shares or the interest from the deceased partner, they buy it at a higher value than very likely their own shares are worth from a income tax basis standpoint. So if my father and I form Copper Beach today, it pretty much has no value. So our income tax basis on our interest let's keep the math simple, is zero. If we then grow the company substantially and one of us passes away, and a cross-purchase design, the surviving partner is going to buy the interest in the business at that higher value. That now means that they have the surviving partner has 50% of their interest with a low zero basis, but 50% at that higher basis. So if that surviving partner goes and sells the company in the future... They actually have a better income tax standpoint, likely on that sale by structuring the buy sell agreement in a cross purchase design versus the entity redemption design. So, if you remember, the entity redemption design is that, that if one of us were to pass away, actual entity, meaning in our case, Copper Beach, is actually making the purchase from the deceased partner. Not the partners themselves, not me or my father as individuals, but the company is doing that. And so this tax benefit that I just mentioned does not come into play in that example because the company is going to redeem that stock from the deceased partner. And now the surviving partner is not going to have any change whatsoever in their income tax basis. So in that same example, if the surviving partner were to then subsequently sell the business, they would own all of their interest at a zero income tax basis. So they'd have a much higher income tax liability when they go to sell that uh, interest after the passing away of one spouse. So that's something that we often see as a, a struggle with business owners is because particularly when they have multiple owners is because Multiple owner businesses, as I mentioned, in a cross-purchase design have to buy a lot more life insurance policies to help facilitate that. So they default to the entity redemption agreement. Say this is easier. The entity in that case is just going to buy, let's say if you have a three-owner business, the entity is only going to have to buy three policies, one on each of the partners instead of six in a cross-purchase design. So it's a lot easier administratively. But by doing that, as I just mentioned, you're you're getting rid of that income tax benefit, perhaps that you would otherwise get in the cross-purchase design. So I know that that was a, a lot of detail, but that's some of the things that we talk about with with families and business owners as to how to structure all this 
to fit what you're trying to accomplish here. Because very often that, ta- that income tax story that we mentioned very often is not being done and or, or the attorneys and advisors are not usually having that conversation up front when the agreement is designed uh, from the beginning. And so as we think it's an important one to at least consider when you're when you're going through the buy-sell agreement design. Yeah. And, and we talked in the past when we had this topic way back when uh, on valuation is a key issue. Michael brought it up a few minutes ago that you have to stay on top of the value of the company to match up with your agreement itself, i.e. adding more death benefit if necessary. But one of the discussions we have when we talk about what's going on in the company, let's assume for Michael, I'll go, I'll go back to this analogy you, you made a little while ago, where Michael and I are partners. Let's say uh, I was working on a project with Michael, without Michael, building out a relationship with uh, an organization that was going to give us a lot of business, as an example. And that that was just about completed, but it didn't it didn't show in the valuation of the company. So, if I were to pass away and I was I was I was controlling that, what what's the fair value to my wife in that relationship? Because now Michael could take that project I was working on and could triple the value of the company. Who won on that one? Michael did. My wife got didn't win so much because it was valued based on the current value or the book value or the or the last 12 month value of the company didn't add in the future results of what was going to be happening based on projects or growth of the company so when you when you talk to your partners or when you're in this dark conversation you got to really look at that valuation to be a number that you off agree that makes sense for all parties because of those opportunities yeah that valuation is another key component how do you do that and that's that's you know again fact Factors into if a partner passes away, how much life insurance do you might want to consider uh, to purchase on each other? Because obviously, there's you know maybe investment costs in terms of how you buy that policy it, that might change depending on what valuation you pick. Now, we often have had this conversation with some families and business owners: is that really? It, we see this more often in family businesses, uh, quite frankly, but it doesn't have to be in a family business. We have seen it, uh, this conversation in a non-family business is really when you talk about buyout between partners, really how much value do you want to get to your spouse? Yep. Almost really has, has you, you can structure the valuation of your entity on a lot of different factors. You can just say, I want, you know, it may be on the market, it would only get uh, simple numbers, a million dollar value. But you know what? I really want us to ensure from a buyout between us as you know at a five million a piece number, and that's the value that we want to set just amongst us. But it doesn't necessarily have a factor on what we could sell in the marketplace, right? So there's a lot of different ways that you can design it. That's again part of the conversation piece. Is really at the end of the day, ultimately, how much value do you want to get to your to your family through through this buy sell agreement? That's Really important, Michael. Talk about a pegging buy sell and, and the risk of that pegging your value. Oh, peg, yep. I mean, we see that very often in terms of again part of the overall conversation that you should be having with your advisors as a business owner is just revisiting your buy sell agreement and particularly the valuation that you're cho- that you've chosen the formula that you've chosen because pegging the value very often will basically not be an accurate portrayal of what the value of the company is usually in the future, nine times out of 10. So when you form the, the buy-sell agreement, maybe when you start a company, 
you have a value of X and that becomes the valuation that is used to, to facilitate that buy-sell agreement. Well, again, fast forward five, 10 years, if something happens to one of the partners, is that valuation really current? Nine times out of 10, it's not because you've been successful in growing your company. And so that now creates an inequity that really can create conflict uh, in the future, as you can imagine, where oh, oh, it does. Where one, you know, the spouse of the or the family of the deceased partner looks at that agreement and says, "Hey, well, this is not really an accurate value of of the company. This was done ten years ago." So, having a valuation metric is really critical, and we've seen a lot of different ways. I know we're getting a little bit off topic in terms of you know the difference between a cross purchase and an NT redemption but it's a good conversation to have which is you know how do you value this company at an appropriate level is it a formula is it based on the last 12 months uh, profit which doesn't factor in what you the example you gave dad yep. about looking into future revenue opportunities of the company you could go out and hire a third party appraiser to, and and maybe have the seller hire an appraiser buyer hire an appraiser and then average those two prices together as of may. I mean, there's a whole host of ways that you can value it, but that's really where, again, just staying on top of this issue is so critical for business owners because stuff happens and we all get busy, of course. And you, again, at the end of the day, I think our role as family CFOs is to try to mitigate conflict or, or look at these issues ahead of time so we can avoid having a conflict situation. This is just another example of that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll twist a little bit further. These shareholder agreements, they're more important than you might think. Uh, again, between two partners, they're extremely important, but it's more important than that because if you don't do that right, that agreement right, and you have 10 or 15, 20 employees working for you, and the company implodes because the shareholder agreements weren't correct, or there's lawsuits flying around between the partners because they didn't get along, or they didn't, didn't structure agreement properly. Those families now lost their jobs. So, so these shareholders affect employees if they're not done correctly. So we look a little deeper on making sure it's done right. And and remember, a shareholder agreement, um, it, it's it's fair on every side. It has no there's no bias. There's it's just it's fair for everybody. And you put these together when everybody's in a good mood. They're all on the same track. They all got the same vision, and they're all working together and loving uh, each other going forward. However, some things change along the way where a partner, to Michael's point earlier, I don't want to work here anymore. Buy me out. Yet partnerships sometimes are stressed with that that structure. If you don't structure these agreements properly for that exit, you have problems as well. So, so you have to spend time in these agreements. We're talking about more of the, the concept itself, but these agreements are critical to the success of the company and all employees that work for that company. Well, I, I wasn't necessarily going to maybe get into this stuff, but I think just that example you gave it might, might be a good bridge into... The, we, we talked about life insurance being the common vehicle that business owners utilize to help fund if a partner passes away, uh, how, the, how that buyout occurs. And that's life insurance is a tried and true way of helping to fund that. But maybe talk, because the example you just gave in terms of, I don't want to work here anymore, I'd buy me out, that the type of life insurance that you buy to maybe help facilitate this can actually form a, a good vehicle to be able to accomplish that objective or excuse me, that eventuality versus just a partner passing away. So maybe talk a little bit about 
permit life insurance or cash value life insurance. Yeah. You know, that, it just triggered my my thought process when you mentioned that example. It figures he brings up planning all the time, right? Right, Eric? <laughs> yep. Michael's <laughs> correct. It's key because when you look at these, these decisions, most people buy term insurance on, on those strategies because it's a it's cheap. It doesn't cost that much depending on the age of the obviously the partners. But remember, term insurance goes away eventually. So if if your partnership if it exceeds the time element on insurance, let's say it's a 20-year term insurance policy and you're now in business 25 years, those policies go away. So there's no funding on an exit or a buyout. So permanent insurance becomes attractive because it's going to be there. But to Michael's point, it also has an investment structure to it. So the uh, the the investment into those contracts, i.e. the premiums, could also build an investment side fund to help facilitate a buyout between partners on an early, I don't want to be here anymore, buy me out. It could be a funding source for that as well. Right. So, so you have to, again, as you see, we talked about a lot of things around this topic. It's just not, let's put an agreement together and, and have lunch. It's a, it's a big deal. Most businesses that we see don't put a lot of effort into these, believe it or not. Uh, because they don't understand the right questions to ask the advisors, like what should be in this agreement? What's the worst case scenario? What's the best case? They don't get involved because in they're not trained to think that way. So, so, so if you're thinking about putting an agreement together tomorrow, listen to this podcast and get some messaging here and go out to your advisors and say, listen, listen to this podcast. I think these guys have some good points on how to structure it. Yeah, no, I think that that was... That was really important. I mean, that's a great conversation in terms of utilizing the policy for other things. And maybe the focal point of purchasing that policy would be, okay, this is going to be a death benefit. If one of us passes away, that death benefit is going to help facilitate that. But depending on the type of policy that you choose and how you fund it, it could really serve other areas of the business, not just to facilitate that that buyout, you could have a cash value that could use really for anything, even if it's not to facilitate the buyout. If it's an asset um, that either, let's say you're going with an entity redemption design and it's a it's a asset of the company's books, you can use that for other things, right? I mean, it could be a, a investment side fund, like you mentioned. So I'd really, you know, look at that and and as a as an option when you're going through these designs. Yeah, and there's there's something called Coley corporate owned life insurance. A lot of major corporations do those type of strategies along with banks called Boley bank owned life insurance. They they use that as a as a facilitator to build these investment accounts to on the balance sheet of the of the institution. So it's got value versus disappearing because it's not uh, a cash value building policy. Just just food for thought. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I think we're running low on time, but I do want to touch on since you the, the wait and see the wait and see. Yeah. I mean, when, you spoiled it a little earlier. This was, I was going to bleeding up to all of this at the end, but I do, I do want to touch on that as, because I, again, I think nine times out of 10, this type of structure is really where a lot of the families we work with end up. And again, how that operates is essentially what you're doing is including both cross-purchase language and entity redemption language inside of your buy-sell agreement, but you have the flexibility or the option to go either route, depending on what is in the best interest of the company and the partners at that time. So it really, again, you can see probably why most businesses go this route after they understand it is because it's really a lot of flexibility one way or the other. So you're not locked into one strategy 
And one way of funding that buyout, and if it doesn't happen to work out at the time, now well, now we're stuck. This wait and see agreement allows for that flexibility. So again, if you have a buy-sell agreement that you know you take it out and, you, and it doesn't have that language in there, talk to your advisors because it might be something that makes a lot of sense to include in, in a revision and a revised document. Well, this has been a ton of information. And like I said, I'm going to be asking you for an email in just a moment, just so people that, you know, this triggered a lot of questions for them, they can they can email those in. But John, you, you brought something up that actually points back to the last podcast that you guys recorded, which was getting a client to understand that they need to be asking questions of their advisor, yep. right? So, and, and too many times they either don't know the questions to ask or they're just not they're not bold enough to ask the questions of what's the pros and cons, so on and so forth. So if you haven't listened to that last podcast, it was very, very good. And it's uh, it's a lot of food for thought on that one as well. So go back and listen to that. Uh, but before we wrap up today, can somebody give some contact information so people can email in questions? Sure. You can always reach us uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, we both have our own pages and we have a corporate page. So you can reach out to us there. Our website address is www.cbfg llc.com and our phone number is area code 856-988-8300 all right perfect gentlemen thank you so much for your time today thank you you bet and the last thank you goes to you listening audience thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the truth about wealth podcast with john and michael paris if you have not subscribed to the podcast yet please click the subscribe now button below this way when john and michael come out with a new podcast it'll show up directly on your listening device and this makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family I also humbly ask that you rate this podcast. Uh, there's usually a star system involved. Give it five stars. Put a little rating on there, maybe a little message to the guys. Uh, tell them the, the great work that they're doing. This makes the algorithm say, you know what? People are interested in this, and they're going to share it with more people. And so the algorithm will send this out to people that are interested in this kind of topic. So that would be, be really helpful. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Copper Beach is not affiliated with American Portfolios Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolios Advisors, Inc. Securities offered through American Portfolio Financial Services, Inc., a member of FINRA SIPC, Investment Advisory and Financial Planning Services offered through American Portfolio Advisors, Inc., an SCC-registered investment advisor. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice. Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. Investments are not guaranteed, involve risk, and may result in a loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Investments are not suitable for all types of investors. 
Copper Beach is an unaffiliated entity of American Portfolios Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolios Advisors, Inc. Any opinion expressed in this forum is not the opinions of American Portfolio Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolio Advisors, Inc. and have not been reviewed by the firm for completeness or accuracy.